0: 1994年11月20日
1: Howdy everyone and welcome to episode 7 of Big Egg Podcasting Universe. I am George Thompson. With me as always, we have David Forrest and Sarah Parkin. And for the first time ever in this uh, this podcast run, this limited series that we are doing, we have got a special guest. So would you uh, like to introduce yourself?
2: Hi, I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe Boyd. I am a martial arts fan, I guess. I hesitate to use the word expert.
1: That's, that's fine, <laughs> knowing about things is very much not part of the USB of anything <laughs> involved with the Pura Purry podcast, so uh, don't worry yourself about that.
3: I would, however, say that Zoe absolutely knows more about you know most martial arts than, say, any of the three of us. This is, uh, and this that is, is that yeah. Is
1: this is really why we have brought Zoe into How in, dare I, you um, dispute my shuto mean...
4: knowledge! <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very much like, okay, we've all seen, like, martial arts in our time like um like we've watched a, a decent amount of uh, ufc uh we did that uh, three episode run on prides in the main podcast uh a couple of years ago but like we're very much not schooled in the various uh martial disciplines and with regards to this uh stuff uh I'm not saying we've been putting this episode off, um, but...
3: but there's been a gap of several months in between the last one, uh, the, the last one we recorded, and this yeah. one, and at least part of that was because we knew that we had a, a gap in our knowledge, which uh, Zoe has successfully been able to fill.
1: Yes, so that 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 is the idea anyway. Now, as for why the fuck are we are talking about uh, martial arts when this is a wrestling podcast, well, as you may remember back in episode two, when we talked about the opening ceremony, all of the teams coming out with their fancy, uh, fancy uh, Eagle of the ninth uh, standards, Basically, what this was, primarily a wrestling show, yes, but Big Egg Wrestling Universe was also a celebration of female combat athletes of uh, various kinds. So, um, as part of the show, there was a run of uh, martial arts fights of various kinds, uh, some involving uh, members of the AJW roster, but um, others others not, and... Um, I mean, we, we, we are covering this uh, this event in full and we are go- going to cover this in full, full with promised detail. So I guess it's time to uh, start talking about the martial arts. So uh, Sarah, just as a, a little bit of a preamble, uh, would you like to just tell us a little bit about the uh, types of martial arts that we will be seeing on this show and uh, exactly what the origins of them are on you know in Japanese fighting culture, I
3: guess? Yeah, sure. So we'll... We'll talk a little bit. I think probably when we get to each fight, we'll probably talk a little bit more about like what 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 the hell is going on. In most of them, (laughs) that would be good. I'll keep this kind of brief for now. But so all of the kind of quote unquote legitimate um, combat sports have kind of always existed in and around pro wrestling in Japan, Um, and it's to be honest, it's quite an uneasy relationship in some places because when you think about how people understand wrestling, and it kind of sits in this. For a lot of people, I think it sits in a kind of liminal space between kind of what's real, quote unquote, and not real, Hmm. quote unquote. Um, And then you have this idea that, you know, is wrestling fake, but wrestling only works if you present it as serious, especially from the point of view of these kind of contemporary audiences. So often what you find is that either wrestling goes completely in the opposite direction and it's kind of so wacky and kind of so over the top that you can't possibly kind of it you can't possibly conflate it with with sort of actual martial arts um, or it takes the route that quite a few wrestling promotions did over the years of playing things absolutely seriously and demonstrating the influences from other sports as well so we're going to see a kickboxing match later on and kickboxing actually developed a lot during kind of the the late 1950s and into the 60s in japan and it was something that actually was on tv like it was during the 70s um by the 1970s there was kickback kickboxing was on three tv channels three times a week like like it was actually it was a really big deal it pretty much disappeared by the 1980s um, so it was still very much and very widely followed, but it had kind of it had, had a boom, it had, had a bit of a bust. Um, and then finally, um, so a kickboxing promotion called K-1 was set up in nineteen ninety-three, so the year before Big Egg Wrestling Universe that we're talking about now, and they had a TV deal. So actually, kickboxing came back to TV kind of only really a few months before this show would have been first announced. So it is still kind of a it's making a bit of a comeback at the time. And what we're going to see in terms of those different uh, sports is, so kickboxing is its own kind of established thing. Shoot boxing was only founded in 1985, um, but that was kind of a mixture of combining a lot of what people were loving about that kind of serious kind of more shoot style focus to pro wrestling at the time and combining that with kickboxing as it had developed. And when you look at a lot of the showmanship around a lot of like the really high publicized fights, like there's so much cross pollination. I actually think it's really hard to separate kind of what's MMA and what isn't. I think probably Usada is the only yeah. way that you can tell, you know, which one in which sports people care if you're on the juice, pretty yeah. much. But
4: I will say, in terms of the kickboxing thing, right? There is there is a strange appeal to it in the sense that I can totally understand why it was on uh, on TV quite a lot because there is a sort of everyman quality to it in the sense that you like my dad will watch kickboxing right my dad watch it because he because it has this legitimacy whereas it's, it's a martial art it's a sport but you also get mad head kicks that just not like knock people to the ground so you you kind of get the sort of this is a professional sport the sport of kings but as well as that I see a man get sparked out in 3 seconds with those lethal head kicks there is a morbid curiosity where people who aren't necessarily combat sports people well yeah, watch I mean, it yeah
1: it, it's easy to it's easy to uh it's easier to explain to someone like imagine boxing is exactly like that but you can box people with your feet as well k1 we've mentioned on the podcast um before when we reviewed the greatest uh, combat uh, sport fight of all time which is a called <laughs> versus Bob Sapp.
3: a classic of the ages. <laughs> such bold title in
2: 1993 when they brought k1 back and finally kickboxing returned to japan do you think they dreamed that one day akabono and bob Sapp would would have a big awkward sweaty
1: fight in the middle of a ring
3: not in their wildest imagination i mean i'd I like f- to think they'd be proud
1: though i mean what, what, what's even what's even worse if they had a fucking rematch over a decade later it oh, no. was if anything even worse they
2: were just setting up the inevitable rubber match to finish the trilogy it's going
1: to take place in 2027
4: i tell you someone who doesn't like k1 kickboxing that's Akabono's wife who to this day is still fucking pissed off at that match
1: oh yeah you just see her in the front row and she is not having a good time
4: it's so funny
3: going back to uh, going back to how that then relates into pro wrestling as well something that I think we've we've talked about when we were talking about some of the other companies that developed in in wrestling as well and kind of split off from the kind of the mainstream you think going back into the eighties like that divide between are you gonna be your kind of glitzy glamorous entertainer versus are you going to be your serious fighty, you know stone cold killer that was the kind of thing that actually led to the demise of a wrestling company when Jackie Sato and Shinobu Kandori actually completely parted ways and you ended up with the foundation of um, JWP and LLPW. So, and they, they had a, a shoot fight where they were supposed to be wrestling and then, and then suddenly it was a shoot and suddenly people were getting hurt and then they were separate companies. So they got uh, and that all came down to a feud about, well, what is pro wrestling and where did that come from? In the early nineties, all Japan Women's Wrestling, AJW, is really trying to have its cake and eat it. Because in 1991, they institute the WWWA martial arts title.
1: I was so jazzed to find out about the existence of this belt. Yeah,
3: it, it, it's really strange, actually, because they seem to be trying to like bridge that gap, and I'm not entirely sure whether they're trying whether it's there to bring in sort of people from legitimate fight backgrounds and get them into AJW using that as a carrot, or whether it's actually about getting in other audiences who wouldn't know, who would otherwise kind of have looked down yeah. on, on pro wrestling a little bit.
4: I would say on this instance there at 91, that would kind of line up whereby, um, I mean, FMW what is called Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling. And the reason is, is that when it started, Onita did all these big, like death matches and stuff against legit judoka. That was the thing where he brought in judoka and even or like bot Leon Spinks, he fought Muhammad Ali. He fought Anita. That
1: match is amazing. Like like Anita tries to put Spinks in an abdominal stretch and he kind of just falls over. <laughs>
4: And like, but the, <laughs> what it, it grew, it, it drew a lot because uh, basically FMW started because Anita was sort of blackballed by New Japan and All Japan. They, they didn't really want him. He'd had a big leg injury and they didn't really think that it would work. But he'd went to Memphis and stuff and he came back and they didn't want this style. So he set up this indie of this sort of Memphis brawling style. And when he was doing it, he just, it was basically a hodgepodge or whatever he could find. So any sort of indie wrestler, people who'd left the, the big two. That were kind of just floating about, you would get them in. Just it was it was a it was a a three ring circus show of you know this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. It was very much, and they, they were the ones that you know brought in like you know the women and stuff like that because again it was another wrinkle. And but the the thing at the start was Onita fighting judoka and like, other martial and karate guys and stuff like that and like wire bar- death matches and stuff like that because. He fought. It brought in the crowds, and they did bring in the crowds. So I can absolutely believe AJW saw Onita fighting some Magioroca, uh, getting crowds, and going, "We can do that."
1: Yeah, and even like, I mean, it wasn't even a um a new idea then. I mean, doing it in a barbed death match was, but um, <laughs> I mean, AJW isn't the first uh, promotion to have a martial arts title. Uh, new Japan had one. Uh, the rather hilariously uh, because it was sanctioned by uh. Vince McMahon, Senior, and later Vince McMahon, Junior, the WWF Martial Arts Title, um, which, but that was that was basically Inoki uh, did all these. It was pretty much entirely centered around him. So he'd have these matches against um, uh, various uh, standouts in martial arts field who he'd uh, pay rather a lot of money to lose to him. And uh, I don't know if the Muhammad Ali fight was for this belt, but um, uh, and and then he held the belt for seventeen years straight, and then he. Danes to lose it to Shota Chochishvili who had been a gold medalist in judo at the Munich Olympics. He lost he lost it to him for a month and then won it back in the rematch and then the belt was shelved. So um
4: <laughs> a prestigious luggage.
1: I mean so I mean, correct me if I'm wrong but like um it seemed like the WWA WW, martial arts title sort of shone more of a spotlight on um the roster as a whole, or or at least um, people lower down the card, like it was well, really a way to build people.
3: It's actually really hard to tell because there barely seemed to have been any matches for it. <laughs> so it was very much so... in keeping
4: with the WWF martial
0: arts kind of title. <laughs> yes,
3: indeed. Well, yeah, I mean, so um, it was originally given out in 1991, and it was won by Bat Yoshinaga. Um, uh, by the way, Bat Yoshinaga, a name that you don't actually hear in many other like AJW context, she's not one of the ones who's kind of held in the same esteem as like a Bull Niccano or someone else who was around at that time, but she's really cool and the name Bat Yoshinaga Is she like a proto-Ram
4: is... Kachou? Is she like a, a goth sort of wrestler? No,
1: know why, she's like a sort of nondescript looking woman who's like fairly stockily built with like sort of a buzz cut Yeah, and like she's very much not going for the glamorous look
3: Yeah, but she, so she wins this belt in 1991, she defends it once in that year she defends it twice in 1992. She defends it once in <laughs> 1993. She vacates it when she retires in October 1994.
1: One month before this show.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, so it is something that kind of, and they do seem to be bringing in sort of people that they wouldn't. It's usually people that they wouldn't have normally worked with that, that are kind of brought in specifically to compete for this title, um, but then she retires um a month later you get these kind of th- these different shoot fights at big egg and i kind of think that they're actually testing the waters to see what the chances are of kind of bringing the belt back and doing more with it because when it comes to 1995 um so sort of in the spring of that year um two of the people who win these shoot fights so you've got um fumiko ishimoto and um kumiko my uh Nakawa, May- um they have a fight for this vacant title in 1995 um Ishimoto wins it um and then the title is kind of very quietly dropped later <laughs> on because they, it's died a death and they don't have anybody to defend
1: it RIP to a real one greatest <laughs> <laughs> championship belt in the history of Joshi and it's really
3: difficult I think because the I get what they're going for but it feels like number one if you're going to do that you really have to commit to it and it doesn't mm. seem like there was ever really a drive to kind of make it a title that mattered, you know, other than to maybe bring it in for kind of the odd mad exhibition mm. fight or something like that. Um, but if you're trying to bridge the gap between sort of martial arts and pro wrestling by 94, 95, like the, the pro industry in Japan is kind of so big, you almost don't really need it. And you, but you also have like with K1 coming back and things like that, There's kind of their own avenue for things mm. like for. for for kind of other martial arts as well, so I don't really see what they what they were planning on getting out of it. Yeah, um,
1: I mean, it's... I mean, Pride's first show was I think 1997, so you're you're not quite at that point mm. yet where MMA has really gone really mainstream in in Japan.
3: And actually, a lot of the fights from um, such other fights as exist from some of these competitors do tend to be afterwards because they they very much they've gone for they've gone for young kind of promising rookies who are kind of really, early, or they might not be rookies because some of them are already world champions and things, but they're univer—they're almost universally teenagers. So they're people who are kind of right at the start of their careers as well. So, and this comes kind of straight after on the card, all of your kind of your rookie matches of the people who are just coming into pro wrestling and are kind of establishing themselves. So I suppose you could see it as being all kind of part of the same section of the card, which is your undercard of giving like the next generation of combat sports, hmm. kind of a showcase. Um, But it's really interesting to watch how all of those how all of those people come to sort of come into pro wrestling, because some of them actually already have links with the industry anyway, but they've obviously kind of gone in different directions and just gone into, you know, kicking people in the head deliberately
1: yeah yeah i mean that that was a very promising line of work for, uh, in the in the late 90s for uh for a lot of a uh, lot of athletes
3: i
4: i think i've mentioned before i think on the podcast about what i my gimmick would be if i was a pro wrestler but i absolutely would have my own martial arts title and just fight like taekwondo guys like but it would be on like icw shows and stuff just to piss them off and just tell them a bit like proper like combat sports none of this garbage nonsense and just bore the fucking life out of them every time <laughs> um until Mark Dallas throws me out. But I, I would absolutely love to do a martial arts champion. Like you know how those mm-hmm. Woshu bullshit people that like yeah. pretend they can Hadook you and stuff like that? I'd I'd beat them all.
1: So. Well, what you should do is like that, <laughs> that like, specific version of Aikido that only Steven Seagal does. <laughs> like, you should just make a championship belt for that. Um, but like this, this sort of uh, martial arts stuff, the kickboxing and the shootboxing, is more stuff that we'll be talking about in the next episode and episode eight. But just to situate um, everyone within the context of uh, the, the imbrication of Joshi and, uh, and martial arts, um, episode seven is um, more to do with uh, amateur wrestling, which is a, a martial art in its own right. But also, um, I mean, this is quite—it's um, quite interesting, actually, because I mean, we're from a country that really doesn't have a big tradition of amateur wrestling. Um, insofar as there is a traditional wrestling in Britain, it's mostly like uh, burly Lancastrians beating each other up in a field in the uh, in the uh, late nineteenth century. So it's
3: well, but don't don't underestimate the influence of that on this style as well. So when we come on to things like you know. The influence of shoot style and how that then eventually made its way into some of like the shoot wrestling and things that we're going to see. Like that line that goes right back to Billy Robinson in Wigan and Carl Gotch training with oh. him, and then all of those kind of styles that eventually trickle down into what we're going to see into what we see in this show yeah actually there's a you know actually there's probably more of an overlap than, mm. than we give credit for oh yeah what,
1: what i what yeah what i more mean is it's one of these very many sports that the british invented and then like just got much shitter at it and uh on <laughs> With, yeah. stopped doing it when we weren't the best in the
2: world yeah it. pretty
1: much yeah. Yeah. which yeah.
2: was pretty much straight away annoyingly <laughs> yeah. like it was like cat wrestling grows in lancashire in the mining communities and then like people like Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt who are just, George Hackenschmidt used to squat horses. Like he would allegedly go into the field, pick up a horse, do a few squats, release said horse like it was no big deal. And like him and Frank Gotch had some apparently incredible Fights in back in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. But how do you compete with those men? Oh, that, that that that's Russia <laughs> yeah. for you.
1: Like, um, have you ever <laughs> seen that um, letter that uh, George Hackenschmidt wrote Charlie Chaplin? What? Wait, hang
3: on. George Hackenschmidt wrote Charlie Chaplin a letter. Someone
1: uploaded it on Twitter like a, a week ago, in like nineteen thirty-two. George Hackenschmidt had just wrote Charlie Chaplin this letter, saying like, "Big fan, love your films. Like, I think <laughs> I think you're really great. Like, we should meet." Dear up-
4: Charlie <laughs> Chaplin, we stand a queen. Signs George Hackenschmidt. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question about Gotch Hackenschmidt because I find out about Gotch Hackenschmidt like every child my age uh, did via *Vengeance 2001* when they unified the world titles, and they were like, "This goes back to Gotch and Hackenschmidt," or like direct lineage. And this is the first time I ever really heard about it. Right, And they were like, oh, they, they were all there for 148 hours and none of them got a fall and it was incredible. I think people at that time, it, it's very much like when you're a kid, you loved every film right, that you had because you couldn't afford to not like a film because it was a VHS as you had. And if you didn't like it, you've lost a VHS to watch. I think that people in the 1800s were just a bit too fit to be bored by 148 hours um, wrestling matches. <laughs> Because, as IWA Mid-South have shown us, really, really long wrestling matches can be fucking boring as hell. Um, I, like, (laughs) can you imagine sitting in this fucking carnival tent for, like, eight hours watching, like, a Greco-Roman fucking hold, never moving? It's proper, like, outsider art. But with, like, beefy (laughs) beefcake men. Like, it's, it's fantastic, but, I mean, it must be incredibly dull. But I, I don't know. I, I would love to go just to see what people made of it.
1: This is taking me back to when I tried to explain to Sarah's 10-year-old cousin who Farmer Burns was when we were at a wrestling show. I still
4: can't
1: really
3: believe he did that. <laughs> um, so you are
4: you're the biggest dork in the world, I George. Know. Do you know that?
3: So just, <laughs> trying to get this in, in, into some sort of context then. So, Zoe, what is the longest... <laughs> fight of any martial art that you have that you think you've ever actually seen.
2: The one that oh, I the, the yeah. longest that I've seen is 90 minutes because um, that was Kazushi yeah. Sakuraba versus Hoist Gracie.
3: Ooh,
2: um, it's
1: amazing. Like we reviewed it on the uh, great. podcast like um, it's as a match it's like often quite dull but as a complete annihilation of the reputation of one family and indeed a whole style of martial <laughs> art over a very long period of time it is absolutely peerless.
4: <laughs> do you ever think you get actual, like, street fights, you know, people fighting in the streets that last that long? They, they just don't oh, God, stop. I hope so. I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, people just don't smack <laughs> each other out and just put each other into, like, intricate holes outside the garage or something like that. And then they're, like... <laughs> I do, I do. <laughs> just walking yeah, into the kebab I'm shop and like, a, a- an armhole.
3: But I'm assuming that the 90 minutes is an outlier, right? Like, most fights oh, have yeah. oh, not yeah. that long, right?
2: Yeah, so back in the in the in the day when like the mixed martial arts was first being a thing, um, and there was there's this idea that they couldn't they couldn't possibly have time limits because that would sully the art. Most fights <laughs> maybe eight minutes was the longest because these were big sort of two hundred and fifty pound nutcases with bare knuckles running at each other and swinging wild haymakers, and also Hoyce Gracie who was you know one hundred and seventy pounds soaking wet but knew how to actually fight, just choking them like it was the easiest thing in the world for him and so this 90 minute fight was the first time really that there had been a a a no time limit fight but also both competitors knew what they were doing and and were actually quite good
1: (laughs) the most horrible thing about this fight was that it was the quarterfinal of a one-night tournament so immediately after going 90 minutes with the hoist gracie and being absolutely like obviously like of dominating the fight really but like obviously that's very tiring sakuraba then had to fight igor the ukrainian freight train vovchanchin who at the time had a professional record of like 41 and 7 and he still went 15 minutes with him and only like lost because his corner was basically like no you've had enough and threw in the towel that i mean that igor
2: vovchanchin at the time was the scariest man alive and i think held the record for the longest win streak in mma for a long long time maybe still does and, like, and Sakuraba just didn't think anything of it oh. and would have gone out if his corner hadn't stopped him. What a fucking legend.
4: <laughs> like, do, you think, do you think Sakuraba was at this? You, might, you, you um, must have been at the show.
1: You he think was with like, UWFI at the time.
4: Yeah, you you think, uh, so, so like,
3: what, so we think Sakuraba might have been taking notes from Sugar Miyuki and Boris <laughs> Flint.
1: I would really hope so. <laughs> that that would be like a great wrinkle to the legend. Maybe he was just like, you know what? I could fucking use this. I mean, thankfully, the um the amateur wrestling matches we are going to be discussing in this episode are nothing like uh ninety minutes. That would be a very time for, for all concerned. The We're um all grateful for the the interesting thing about because uh, I mean. Not being a martial arts expert, as we've uh, outlined, um, I didn't especially know much about any of these um, uh, any of these competitors. Um, but uh, essentially, what I wanted to know, and Sarah has helpfully uh, compiled some research for us, it's like: Are these actually world class um, amateur wrestlers, or are they just some scrubs they found on the street? And um, it's um, it's very reassuring that they are actually the um, former. And I guess the reason this is here is because. Um, where men's freestyle wrestling is concerned, uh, Russia has uh, been the preeminent country uh, in that, and going back to the days where it was the, the Soviet Union, RIP to a real one once again, and <laughs> in, in women's in women's freestyle wrestling, Japan is the dominant country, to the extent where uh, since 2005, there's only been two women's freestyle wrestling world championships where Japan has not won the team gold medal, so, um, you know, this is quite stuff that is taken quite seriously and what we have on this uh on this uh BA card and uh, these are the two matches that we are going to be discussing on this episode is uh two top Japanese amateur wrestlers facing two top French competitors so uh Sarah if you will uh just tell us a little bit about the uh, women we are going to be seeing on the show because I would assume that most people who are listening to this will not be familiar with them uh, whatsoever
3: yeah so this is I found this really interesting when I started doing a bit of digging because these are people who I would absolutely never have heard of in a million years. But it actually turned just because this is not this is not my area at all. But it turns out that if you if you were into like amateur wrestling or anything at the time, these were actually really big names. And that kind of really took me by surprise, I guess. I'm actually really curious. So before we sent um you these matches, Zoe, had you heard of any of these people just from their general existence?
2: I'd heard of the, the uh, only one of them and that's miyu Yamamoto, and that's because she is the elder sister of uh, another mixed martial artist called uh narafumi Yamamoto or Kids Yamamoto um who sadly passed away in 2018 but but was at the time just fucking unbelievable. And learning learning about him you learn that he came from this family of insane athletes uh, and, and and wrestlers. Like, um, their father was an Olympic wrestler at the Munich Olympics uh, and, and was, I, I think, training his children to surpass him and did for the most part.
4: Fun fact, um, Miu is named uh, after um, Munich. They called, it, called her dad Mr. Munich for some reason well, because he was at the Munich Olympics oh. and she derived his name from it.
1: That that that's that's really interesting. It's spelt with two U's as well, which isn't usual. Mew. So that might. Um, mew. <laughs> oh God, I'm, having, <laughs> I'm having flashbacks to that um, clearly colossal pervert who sits in the row of all the women wrestling shows and goes yo. Um, so uh, yeah, Yamamoto is in and... the second match. So <laughs> Dave Meltzer, yes. So um, the first match is um, so Kyo Hamaguchi versus Doris Blind. So uh, yeah, let's uh, let's get into these and then we'll. Uh,
4: Doris Belind, um First of all, I would like to say I am completely and utterly in love with Doris Blind. I think she's amazing. Um, I want her to be my French wife. I want to uh, do the place. You know, uh, you know, I'm um, escaped to the chateau of Dick Shawbridge. Um, I basically want to live that with Doris Blind, right? And I will say, just for the just for the avoidance of doubt, she was born eighteen years before this uh, uh, show. Just just to make it unknown, uh, 1976 is when she was born. I just want to make that very, very clear. David,
3: does your actual wife know about your plans to make Doris Blynn
4: <laughs> your French wife? I mean, Bison Kimuda has very much like, uh, rebuffed my advances so far. So, you know, we'll, we'll go for Doris Uh for the moment. But no, I think she's great. She's a 3 times silver medalist at the World Championships, 94, 95, 96. Her sister, Emmanuel, was world champion in 1990, and her father was like a proficient French wrestler. So they got they're again similar to um, Yamamoto. Uh, Yamamoto as well. I mean, she has an absolute murderous row of honors. I mean, she's won three times gold medals at world champions, gold medals at Asian Games, nine times all Japan champion. She she's legit and um, yeah, and she was like winning tournaments at the age of like ten and stuff. She was. Insane, like she's really, really, really good, like in terms of a top level athlete. And I, because I, I generally went into this expecting it to be, you know, your usual, like you know, having you Japan have like a collegiate athlete, and it's always like you know he was he was quite good in college and stuff like that, and you know maybe want to go medal the Japan Championships, something like that. But you know, we, we think he's got promised That she's the real deal. She, you're looking at the real deal now. In the words of Deal Brown. The thing
1: about researching the French women was actually um, neither of them had uh, English language Wikipedia pages, so um,
3: it's a good job I did an A level in French. It, is it, very, it is, it is
1: a <laughs> very good, uh, very good job. Uh, yeah. So Doris Bling clearly from a um, uh, a big wrestling family. Uh, so what did you find on um, uh, on Hamaguchi? Well,
3: wrestling families is actually kind of a theme. It, it means, oh, oh, fuck! Oh,
1: yeah, 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 yeah.
3: So we were talking about so right so yeah so doris blind um obviously had never uh, never won a gold medal but though she had was a three-time silver medalist um so that was she was at the start of that run here as well um kyoko hamaguchi is um a bit of a legend in her area actually in terms of freestyle wrestling um but she also comes from one of those kind of classic wrestling families but from pura because she is the daughter of Animal Hamaguchi about whom I don't know very much but I'm guessing that you guys do
1: Yeah he was a big star in all uh, Japan and New Japan in the 80s he was uh, considered small for a heavyweight which is quite funny because like you see him uh, accompanying his daughter to the ring and he is a big bloke um to the point where um he was where he was a sort of um follower of Ricky Choshu and when Choshu jumped from New Japan to All Japan uh, like Hamaguchi was Choshu's main tag partner and then giant barber was like being the size queen that he is like no you are you're too you're too small we're gonna put uh a Yoshiaki Yatsu with uh, Choshu instead and have that be the main uh, the main tag feud. Uh so he was like he was a pretty he's not like a really, really like top main eventer, but he was like known for his colourful personality and being somewhat of a wild man as the name would suggest.
3: I think that's borne out by seeing him accompany his daughter to the ring because she is So she's someone who had actually started training at her dad's JoJo when she was 14, because she kind of had her eye on going into pro wrestling, it seems, at least for a while. Um, But it turns out that amateur wrestling ended up being her her thing first. Um, So she's kind of still at the start of her career. She went on to win her first championship in her weight class in 1996, so she's still going there. She has this incredible run of Japan and Asian games and world championship runs. Actually, yeah, Kyoko Hamaguchi was the one who won the Japan Championship 10 years in a row, 1996 to 2005. She's insane. Um, She's a five-time world championship, a a two-times Olympic bronze medalist. Um, She carried Japan's flag into the 2004 Olympic opening ceremony. That is really cool. Yeah, like, (laughs) she is someone who at that point, so she didn't, her Olympic record doesn't actually stand up against, it's not necessarily in keeping with her kind of regionals and and worlds and all of that but you know some people just it doesn't always translate um but she was always she had those links into the pro wrestling world and she was for six in six in six different years she was the winner of tokyo sports awards wrestling special special award which they normally give to a few people every year but it's given for amateur wrestling champions so Tokyo Sports which we all know of kind of being responsible for a lot of the the taste making in like Japanese Mm. wrestling has this where they recognize amateur achievements as well and she was always at the front of that I admit maybe that was helped a little bit by sort of her connection into the puro world and that therefore she was a bit of a Mm. crossover star from their point of view but it's really interesting to see when she gets into this match it really seems to mean a lot to her and I think if she's been training at the dojo, maybe she had her eye on going into AJW and she was kind of hoping to impress people. Well, well my,
1: my understanding is that the AJW wanted to sign her and Yamamoto in 1997, but um, 1997 was the year they really hit the skids in yeah. terms of finances, so the money clearly wasn't there. But I think they had their eye on these two amateur wrestling stars wanting them to turn pro, but then it it, uh, it didn't work out. So, yeah. um...
3: so But when we are at, at Big Egg, the industry, I think, they're maybe not quite ready for it. Although to be fair, this is the age when a lot of people were making their debuts in AJW anyway. So they actually weren't that far off oh, kind of traditional rookies. But, yeah. you know, It's a shoot fighting is a different. You know, all of your shoot fights have very different career trajectories. Yeah.
1: Well, it's quite interesting. You said that Hamaguchi started training at her father's dojo when she was fourteen. She's only sixteen here.
3: Yeah. Oh, when yeah. she
1: when she has this uh, <laughs> she has this match. So
3: I um... suspect actually that she had been. She'd probably been training with an eye on going into Joshi, but actually, she'd probably been doing her amateur stuff from much younger. Yeah, I mean,
0: yeah,
4: I, I, I looked into it a wee bit. Um, There's kind of two sort of currents to this where Hamaguchi absolutely did want to do Joshi. She, she wanted to basically live in her father's footsteps, and she was always very, um, her and Yamamoto, uh, Yamamoto, both kind of wanted to do it, and they were very disappointed when AJW, you know, kind of. Uh, hit the pan, and that was you know down. Uh, that was all kind of. Out of them. But by that point, she was like a, you know an amateur wrestling legend, but like she definitely wanted to do it. I think Animal wanted her to do it as well. And I think if we're being a bit cynical, I think this whole thing was actually to try and court them. It was actually uh, you know how uh, when you if you if you do like an engineering degree or something, you get wind and dined by all these engineering companies in your last year because they want to try and court you. This very much yeah. felt like that when they were electrically just trying to poach them um, and get them inside. And then,
2: you, then they make you fight in front of 20,000 yeah. people.
3: <laughs> I mean, I knew a lot of engineering students who graduated with the scars from nights out that may or may not have been funded by, Carver, <laughs> yeah. by like fossil fuel giants. I,
1: I mean, I did English literature, so I have absolutely no idea what it's like to be headhunted by a uh, big companies at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I guess let's, uh, get into talking about, uh, so this is a uh, match number six on the card. And that's the other thing, actually. Uh, I always, for some reason thought that all this martial arts, uh, stuff was, um quite uh sort of towards the middle of the show it's actually quite near the start and the only wrestling that the people who have paid their money to see the professional wrestling show have actually seen at the point that the martial arts uh, exhibition start is the rookie match that we have uh, covered pre- in the previous episode the minis match the junior title match and that uh, match with uh, uh and like so they haven't actually seen anything really like big time in terms of the pro wrestling and I'll get get warmed up with uh, like a few sort of five to 10 minute uh, matches just to uh, get the crowd going up. Like, nope. Now we're going to spend an hour and a half doing some, uh, doing some shoot fighting and then you'll get to see the um, wrestling. And it's actually quite interesting how the crowd certainly reacts more favorably to this stuff, not by any stretch going mad for it, but um, certainly more favorably than um, crowd did. The other sort of example I have of um uh, wrestling being interrupted by shoot fighting, which is, of course, the WWF Brawl for All tournament in, uh, <laughs> in uh, 1999, which it is fair to say the crowd did not react uh, very well to at all. Having said that, that was um, less a case of top amateur wrestlers being allowed to show their skills in front of a big audience and more hard lads who fancied themselves as pub fighters um, getting uh, getting together and uh, seeing
3: what please, happened. So uh,
4: Please give it his correct name, which is, of course, uh, Raw Underground Origins.
3: <laughs> I I actually really like so apparently so animal Hamaguchi got a bit of a reputation for being like very into and very emotional about his daughter's fights. I so I I kind of imagine this as being like Ric Flair every time he accompanies Charlotte <laughs> Flair to the ring, and for some reason he starts elbow dropping his own jacket on the outside <laughs> or something like that.
4: <laughs> when she was wrestling at the Olympics, he was at the side just going, you know, being be like, "Come on, there, that's not a fucking belt," all that.
3: He's
1: in full embarrassing dad mode. He would definitely get like sent from the touchline at a like under 15s football game.
0: He,
3: well, I think actually, he actually seems quite restrained during during this match, but until until the end, I think we'll, we'll talk yeah. about that in a bit. I, um, I quite <laughs> like the way that they presented this. So they had um, They kind of had each sort of contingent come out together. So they had like so Blind and Gummy came out together, and then Hamaguchi and Yamamoto came out together, and then they kind of did it as a bit of a they didn't make a big fuss out of everybody getting individual entrances. They kind of presented it a bit more like a team sport.
1: Yeah, which is, it's it's kind of a little bit like the uh, the shoot the shoot boxing and kickboxing fights. Uh, we'll talk about in the next episode, I have a little bit more of the razzmatazz. This is more in keeping with, and which is fair enough, because these were all active um, uh, you know, freestyle wrestling competitors um, at the time. So, yeah, it, it's very much presented as like sort of a bit of an amped up version of what you have in the Olympics. They've even got the flags on the leotards. We do get uh, pre-match promos, which uh, which I would imagine you do not get at the uh, at the Olympics, which are very good. Uh, Kyoko Hamaguchi seems very giggly, um, like she's yes. uh, her dad does a lot of the talking. He's also wearing a weightlifting belt to be her second, which is absolutely <laughs> amazing. What a worker! <laughs>
3: Does anyone else think that Doris Blind will inevitably be played by Scarlett Johansson in the biopic? Oh, absolutely.
4: Biopic? If, any- if anything, a downgrade on the goddess that is Doris Blind. Fair
3: the- <laughs> <laughs> you know, Scarlett Johansson probably thinks she could play a Hamaguchi as well, <laughs> <laughs> but she actually looks like Blind. Um, yeah. So, in for, for somebody who Zoe, is this good? Is this good? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about this.
2: This this match is a lesson in why in two things. One of which is that a ring is oh, terrible oh, for most combat sports because the one thing you don't want is a barrier that you can fall through, <laughs> and it's also a lesson in the fact that amateur wrestling is contested in an, in a in an a, a arena that's uh, about usually twelve meters in diameter. Wrestling rings, I looked it up, and, and they're six meters in diameter. So, which is which is why this match is god-awful in terms of every three seconds, they go to the ropes and they have to stop, and the referee is clearly pissing himself in terror that they're going to fall out of the ring Well,
4: I think it's uh, time to stick on some DJ alligator in the background because it's time to blow the whistle because Jesus Christ man Like it's literally, every time they get a rope break, the referee blows his whistle they have a rope break every 2.5 seconds so it is, it's ridiculous <laughs>
3: I think that's one of the things I found difficult with with, <laughs> with all of these fights, actually, is that they're so stoppy-starty, which is, I I get that that is actually probably just a part of yeah. watching the uh, of watching any of these sports in the wild, but I don't know. I think it just it's well, feel, it feels out of sync. Well, well
1: the, kickbox- a of the, yeah, the, the kickboxing and shootboxing is stoppy-starty because it's got a round system. This is stoppy-starty because this cunt's having to blow his whistle more often than Bill Alfonso. Like, it's just absolutely <laughs> constant. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it, it, it also has one of my favorite um naked emotions that you don't really get in wrestling that much it's when two wrestlers are in a match that has got a fatal flaw and they know it's fucking dog- like they're, they're fucked because you see Doris Splend- not you see having a good as well but like the first time they get the ropes you're like all right okay cool and then um they hit it again and they're like it's quite quite narrow um how, how it do- and then it turns into like an anita bomb match in terms of trying to avoid the ropes because it just because and it just failing miserably because and you can see there is like a couple of moments you see Doris splint and you see her face and she's just like what have i done why who thought this up? <laughs> who thought this was a good she's really idea
1: not having a good time going like her back going into these ropes like she would not last the first day of wrestling school
3: <laughs> running the ropes hurts it like, does nobody, yeah, it really it, hurts it's like, like the fucking they're, steel cables yeah they they're, they're very hard and they're very tight and like they do hurt when you are when you run into them especially if you're not used to it and then you know we're pretty, We're quite lucky that they don't actually just fall out of the ring altogether. Well,
1: they nearly did at one point because, like, there's um, there there is a point in this match at which um, Yamamoto basically nearly does the Biggie Langston spear through the ropes to the outside, <laughs> and like, they only just like w- what I wouldn't give for like Paul Heyman on commentary just shouting go go go.
2: <laughs> I think is this the one where Hamaguchi just just basically yeets splinned off her, I think, and through the ropes again. Yeah. But thankfully onto the side that isn't like a six foot drop. But yeah, like it's, it's again, it just, it's, it's impressive to me how little ropes work. Oh and, and, God. Like, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of Pride FC. I'm a huge fan of Japanese MMA. The ring is only in Japanese martial arts for nostalgia at this point. It's fucking terrible <laughs> for every part of mixed martial arts. It barely works
1: in boxing. Like, <laughs> It's so true like the like I mean the other the other difficulty with this is that um like i I, I know a bit a bit about the scoring system in amateur wrestling um now in the second fight you get to see the scoreboard at the end and uh, what they do have at ringside is the, uh, they have some judges and they'll hold up a little card with a one on it when uh, a competitor scores a point. The problem is that the way this is shot you don't always see it. Um, with the with the camera angle, when a point has been scored, because they've like missed the guy showing showing uh, like holding the thing up, and there's also not an on-screen scoreboard. So at one point in this fight, the commentator says uh, that Blind has sand points, which is three. So I I take it she is ahead at that point. But it's actually <laughs> quite unless you like have a very uh, thorough understanding of the scoring system in amateur wrestling, which I would imagine most people don't, and certainly a lot of the people in the stadium, it's quite hard to track who's actually winning. <laughs>
2: I was spending that entire match thinking that uh, Hamaguchi was winning. And and again, I don't know. I I know a bit about, I know about the techniques and stuff. um, And I've I've trained a bit of wrestling and I I know how the scoring vaguely works, but even then it's a bit arcane. But like, I was just, I thought, I think at one point I heard somebody say something like 1.0 behind. And I thought, well that tracks because this feels like it's quite close but Hamaguchi is ahead
1: Yeah I, like I, that I know the, I know the blind one because her arm was raised at the uh, at the end of the Yeah like
3: the Hamaguchi was crushed
1: Oh I it. know like that. Was- oh god that was such a sobby interview
2: <laughs> That was
3: heartbreaking she totally And I
2: don't know why I kept watching it I couldn't understand a thing that was going on besides tears No
3: and her dad was talking for her yeah. and clearly can't quite work out whether he's saying like it's okay my daughter's the best or because you can't tell from his body language or anything he could be like Singing her praises, or he could be like shouting at her for crying in public. (laughs) Like, I can't can't, make
1: out. What they did after the after, like, Blind was declared the winner, like, uh, Animal and uh, Kyoko did sort of opposed to the crowd afterwards and then she she cut a promo i just imagine like animal whispering in her ear like gotta get your heat back brother <laughs> <laughs> oh god it's um this was so fucking bizarre like um like i i i genuinely don't know what to make of uh, this but i really felt for i felt like kyoko hamaguchi was being very hard on herself because like she's only been training formally for like two years and she's clearly superior competitor <laughs> I
2: think it has to be the frustration,
1: because I, like again, looking at that, she is
2: the better wrestler, hands down. And like watching it happen, she has this really weird style of wrestling that I haven't, I, again, I don't watch a lot of amateur wrestling, but it's not something that I've really seen, which is rather than shooting for takedowns, she just grabs Blin's head. She just gets a front headlock and either... Let's Blind try and shoot for a takedown and just sprawls on top of her and gets the control that way. Or a couple of times, just literally grabs her and yanks her down to the
1: mat. Like, pure muscles are down. And it's quite interesting to watch. Maybe it's the sort of stuff that, like, um, it, it, it maybe looks like impressive but it like it doesn't actually score you any points in the same way that like you can get Ungolo Kante really cheap for your fantasy football team because none of the things he is good at, like like covering the positions and like running <laughs> around a lot actually score you any points. So if you're the best players in league you can get him for fuck all. So maybe that's really? the sort of thing that's going on here. It's entirely possible because she definitely she never gets
2: Blinds back to the mat, and that's really how you score. Yeah, we
1: will see in the, we'll see in the second fight that there's like there's a lot of that going on. But like, yeah, I guess it's I guess it's reassuring to know that we don't have the. Uh... The usual, let's say, lenient to the home competitor Japanese judging that can happen in um, in MMA to the point where, like you know, some of the later Sakuraba fights, his head's basically hanging off his body, and the judges like, no, he's yeah. on, "Mate, like, go on." A 10-7
4: have a round body. to Sakuraba as he's being pounded <laughs> into hamburger. 7 There you go. What a round for Sakuraba. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, to be fair, there is a there is a quite a quite a cool moment here where in in between uh, where. At one point, someone tries to give um, Kyoko some ice for her face because she started bleeding a little bit, and she pushes her away. And she's just oh, like, no, yeah, I am a
0: fighter, I am involved.
1: <laughs> it's such a great baby face performance, even though this is a shoot. Like, it's it's definitely got uh, like pro wrestling about it, right down to the like, you've, you've we've had tearful like um, post match promos by losing competitors in the wrestling matches on this show as well so the i think the other the other sad thing about it is that like i know i only just recently noticed this when they do the post-match interviews is that only the people who win get asked the questions by the actual interviewer uh, everybody that they have else goes start. into a
3: press conference yeah they go
1: into like some sort of loser's pen where they have to just, they just <laughs> sit at a desk and just look sad i mean i i think like all this sort of like cool wrestling that um uh hamaguchi was doing in this of like that wasn't like maybe putting her head on the scoreboard. I mean, clearly she managed to put it together later in her career. Like with all those <laughs> Yeah, patterns. oh, definitely, yeah.
4: I will say, I think that there is certainly something to this that this is the Dome. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is a big event, regardless of whether this yeah. is some, like
3: deadly four-minute match if you're into pro wrestling the fact that you, you even if you're not doing pro wrestling the fact that you're doing a show at the Tokyo Dome is still a pretty big deal
1: yeah I mean clearly this is going to be like by far the biggest crowd that any of these amateur wrestlers have performed in front of obviously circumstances not being ideal with the incredibly circumscribed combat zone but um <laughs> uh like obviously this would have been like a quite a a thrill for them but yes i think uh Kiko hamaguchi maybe would rather have uh, come away with the three points um after that uh, fight but uh you know things worked out for uh um pretty well, she well after right. that she, 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 she did right. she did all right for herself yeah,
2: presumably by avoiding wrestling rings for the rest <laughs> of her life
1: <laughs> yeah maybe she was like actually you know what um this kind of, kind of makes me wish i'd seen some uh more of uh because there is an amateur wrestling league in India which is presented like pro wrestling, um, perhaps by the people who, who who shoot the the pro kabaddi, um, which is uh, which is absolutely amazing. But they like give it all the razzmatazz. So th- this was kind of just an incredibly weird um, experience. We have another uh, another fight to um, cover of this uh, of this type. So uh, yeah, the weirdness is not a day thing.
4: It, this is very much the. The Smackdown special of, you know, two members of two opposing tag teams fight each other and then they finish. And then the other two jump in the ring and have an impromptu match there. And then at the same time, it was very much, you know, the Usos versus Fashion Police.
1: That's as good a time as any to get into that. So, Sarah, tell us a little bit about uh, the competitors in match seven, which is Miyu Yamamoto versus Anagumis.
3: Yeah, so um, Gunny is a little bit older than the others. From what I can work out, I think she's about 21 at the time of Big Egg. I mean, she was a she was competing as a junior in 1988 in amateur wrestling, so it bears out that she was maybe a little bit older. Um, at this point, she has a gold and a silver medal at the World Championships under her belt. Uh, she won the first World Championship she entered, which is uh, <laughs> nice. not a bad Um She eventually went on to win four World Championships, um, and then she had... Um, a bit of a gap and had a long comeback um, and won a bronze in 2010, so she had Jesus. like quite, yeah, so 11 years after her last medal and 17 years after her first win, so she did actually, she ended up having quite a long gap, whether, I, I don't really know what that was, I know for a lot of people they take a break when they have a family or they might just yeah. decide to go off and do something else, um, so in, in, she obviously had in mind that she kind of wanted to come back for an Olympics because in 2004 she managed to get a bronze um, but she was in the um, that was just a later part of her career by then and she got bronzes in her world championships in um, in 2006 and 2007 from what i could make out as well so the the length and the kind of she definitely had peaks and troughs in her career but at this point there's no arguing that she's an absolute world class competitor
1: yeah and i mean the 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 really interesting thing about this and I think the reason it was booked is this is actually a rematch of the gold medal bout in the 50 kilogram strawweight category from that year's world championships in Sofia, so in which Yamamoto beat Gomez so like that's uh, that's really cool this is literally the best two in the world in their in their weight category going at it in front of like forty two thousand old people
3: yeah but I think it's quite clear from the crowd reactions as well that um, Yamamoto mm-hmm. is the one that people actually understand and people that that people have actually connected with by the time she comes out um because as so as zoe was saying earlier um with Miyu yamamoto being from a a kind of a family of wrestlers who all become quite well uh, all become quite well known and being from a wrestling family um so she is the daughter of an olympic wrestler who as Zoe was explaining. Seems to have just kind of raised his children to be like his own personal army or something. Yeah. He clearly wanted just to have a variety of killers, like that he could call upon at will. Um, yeah, as soon as he was
2: given his first child, he's just like, "I would like this to be able to murder." <laughs> it's like, yes,
3: yeah, if I'm going to spend, if I'm going to invest the money in feeding and clothing this thing, I would like it to be my personal <laughs> assassin. So
1: this is literally the plot of *Line of Duty*, by the way.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so she is. Um, She's a bit of a wonderkind uh, as well. When you look at kind of the achievements of some of the others, so she won four consecutive Japan Women's Championships starting at the age of thirteen. But she was Christ. but she was too young for the World Championships, um, which is why she didn't go until 1991, when she won the World Championship at the age of seventeen and was the youngest ever winner. Um, she won world championships in 1994 and 1995, so she's already. So she's definitely one of the best in the world at this time. Her her career after Big Egg is is fascinating.
1: Right? Yeah, this is because, so good. Um,
3: so <laughs> essentially, her career rises and falls according to what happens with her marriages. So stay with me. I'm just going to tell you this story. I'm just going to tell you a bit about the life of Mia Yamamoto. Um, she retired to get married and start a family, um, sort of later in 1995. She had a comeback in 1999 after her divorce. Um, she retired again in 2000 when she remarried to an MMA fighter called Ensign Inouye.
1: Yes. Yeah. I was so jazzed when I found Ensign who absolutely did security for the Yakuza, because he has talked about it <laughs> on camera. Oh,
4: yeah. He actually went on Joe Rogan's podcast and just talked about how like he, the Yakuza were like involved in like, drug trafficking, sex trafficking, all that, but they had a lot of honour so that's great So it's fine
0: yeah they, they do it very
2: politely but like he's so so. um uh, Miyu Yamamoto has a brother Kid Yamamoto who goes into MMA and he goes into MMA and this is none of this is confirmed <laughs> but he goes into MMA because something happens allegedly with the Yakuza and they they tell him not to wrestle so he doesn't so he goes into MMA instead thanks to Ensign Inui so Miyu Yamamoto is a great influence on her brother yeah that's
1: what 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 a life! Jesus Jesus yeah. Christ! So
3: she um she um women's wrestling finally becomes an Olympic sport in two thousand and four. So actually the fact that um Gumi and Yamamoto both make comebacks because there's a shot at the Olympics now in two thousand and four, I think, is really significant. Um, so and then. Again, she tried to make a comeback in 2011 for the 2012 Olympics. Um, she ended up not qualifying for the team, but she won, um, she won a Japanese Open Championship in 2011 as part of that qualification mm-hmm. process.
4: She went out in gold deference to Georgia.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Didn't Kurt Angle try to make a comeback in 2012 he did, as well? Yes, he did. That went well. <laughs>
3: so actually, like, a lot of her, her big losses and then comebacks actually seem to cluster around like divorces. Pretty much. <laughs> so she thinks. Uh, I taking the divorce well,
4: qualifying for the Olympics.
3: The thing is after she misses out on the Olympics in 2011, massive disappointment. 2013, she moves to Canada, and at this point, she goes into MMA. In 2016, brace yourself, David, because this is very much your thing. She starts having fights in Rising.
4: Yes. <laughs> you unequivocally <laughs> love to see it.
3: She was in her
1: 40s by this time, by the way. She's decided to start doing MMA.
4: Yeah, I very much feel that she was hired because Kid Yamamoto was in Ryzen. He was talking says, oh, I'm going to see my sister. He goes, hold on, you have a sister? Yeah. Is she free on Monday?
1: <laughs> I thought you were going to say she was, she was fine because Kid Yamamoto was in debt to the actor.
4: Ak- <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, they didn't even know she was a fighter. They're like, look, we just need a body. Can can she turn up? And then it turns out she's actually got like, this.
2: Yeah, that's legitimately a good part of of mixed martial art matchbooking is do you have a vaguely famous name? All right, you're in. Yeah.
3: I mean, mean, to be fair, it's a bit of a transition for her, but by 2018, 2019, she actually strings some wins together, so she gets good at this. Um, But in between, so... I mean, just proving that she is the perfect synergy of, like, shoot fighting and pro wrestling. In 2017, she finally takes the step that all classic sort of Joshi icons do in um, doing a naked photo shoot for a Japanese magazine called The Strongest Nudity. (laughs) (laughs) What? The name the name of the the name <laughs> of the feature in the magazine. Um, I believe the um, the magazine, its name translates into English as Flash. Um, makes that what you, yeah, you have it. the ISBN number at all of, of that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm afraid I don't. But she did also do a nude photo album in the same year called Queen. So, if you want to go and look for that, David, you may as well.
1: The strongest nudity strongest sounds like a fucking John Fowles novel.
3: <laughs> her, her enemy record is six and four altogether she's
1: won more than she's lost that's more than you can say for bob (laughs) sap
3: so this is incredible like she's so hamaguchi and, and yamamoto both are they're kind of very much at the beginning of their careers by the time it comes to big egg although yamamoto has already started racking up the wins and everything under her belt but both of these are kind of future legends yeah it's quite exciting to see them here as like giggly Teenagers, yeah, it's a <laughs> real
1: sliding doors moment to think what they could have done in professional wrestling had the had the pieces fallen into place for them to be signed in uh, in nineteen ninety seven. But also, like uh, a, a major loss to the world of freestyle wrestling. So, like, um, it's it's re- it's really really interesting. The the, the other funny thing about uh, Miri Yamamoto's um, husband, who are, aren't a terrifying Yakuza-linked MMA <laughs> fighters, is that one was a um, footballer for Urawa Red, Red Diamonds. The, the hardest team name in the J League to say, clearly. Um, also known as the uh, the favourite team of the aforementioned uh, Josie Pervert. And her third husband was, I think, an uh, al- alpine skier. So, yeah, like, yep, so yep. she clearly has a tie, but it's for, like, uh, athletes in uh, in increasingly niche sports. Increasingly <laughs> niche
3: and increasingly dangerous sports as well, actually. Because honestly, <laughs> I would say skiing is more scary than MMA. Is
1: it more scary than being in MMA while working for the Yakuza, though? <laughs> <laughs>
3: No, it probably depends on whether you're on their good side or not. Depends yeah, on whether is... you're a good employee for the Yakuza, I would get. I wonder
4: if the Yakuza has her hand in skiing. Can you imagine that? <laughs> <laughs> Regged skiing. <laughs> I just love Listen the idea of like, Yakuza is. bosses betting on the Alpine downhill at the fucking St. Moritz.
1: <laughs> Listen, <laughs> Takeshi-chan, we need you to crash into a tree in this race because we've bet on your opponent. <laughs>
3: I really love the the idea that when we first started talking about this the name Miyu Yamamoto comes up and then Zoe obviously kind of goes oh yeah you got this whole family and then you start tracing this like crazy life story (laughs) which seems tied up with like the history of MMA in Japan and elsewhere at the same time. What a family!
2: Sorry just one last thing about the Yamamoto family because we haven't talked about Seiko Yamamoto who is Miyu's other sister who doesn't have as wild a life but she's she's possibly my favorite because she she again she gets i think four wrestling world championships she's a, another incredibly talented wrestler uh, and then she goes and has a baby and she retires for a few years uh, and then she comes back and sort of makes a bit of waves but she isn't what she what you know she isn't as good as she used to be and then in 2013 randomly with seemingly no interest or experience in this beforehand goes and joins the 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 um, abu dhabi combat club submission wrestling that you know the the premier grappling competition for submission grappling in the world and gets a bronze. What? Just, yeah, just out of nowhere Nothing with the seemingly no experience. Just for shits and giggles. Never does it again. Just like, yeah. Guess guess I can do that and then fuck off. Huge
4: turkey at the 2002 World Cup energy to that we just turns up, goes, goes for a place and then fucks off.
3: So how do all of these tournaments work then? Is it it's not like a straight like you get a tournament draw where you sort of have people like against each other in quarters no, and semis it's and um
1: it's like i don't know how it happens at the abu dhabi combat club but uh, certainly with the uh if you see someone's won a bronze in the uh, in the olympics in wrestling um how the tournament works is basically the people who get eliminated in early rounds go into a repechage and then basically whoever um, so, it's not the losing semi finalists who get the bronze, it's whoever makes it out of this sort of loser's bracket. So, you have to fight your way through like a hell of a lot of people to get the bronze, and it's maybe arguably more gruelling than, uh, than getting the gold medal. So, um, yeah. But you
3: probably have to kill more people to get the bronze than you did yeah. to get the gold anyway.
1: Crazy, 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 crazy <laughs> shit.
3: What a bloody family. Yeah. There's a reality show in this, isn't there?
1: Keeping up with the Yamamoto.
3: <laughs> Can you imagine? That would be the most terrifying show in the world.
1: Yeah, I I would like I would just like an, an wacky neighbor animal hamaguchi just coming around with his weight belt <laughs> just to <poison> us <laughs> in So uh well after all that I, I I fear that our rundown of the match might be a little bit dull by comparison but let's let's do it anyway. So uh get the uh, the pre-match uh, promos uh Anagomi seems uh seems very nice and her and the interpreter seem to just be having a great old time. These are actually the promos that um uh, are most comprehensible to us, other than the English language ones on the show from uh, Reggie Bennett, who we've talked about, and Alundra Blaze, who we are still to cover. Um, so I got the odd word here and there. My French is pretty shit um, now. Sarah, did you get any of? Uh, did well, you get any of this?
3: Bits and pieces. I think part of the issue is number one. Um... French people speak quite fast, and also you've got simultaneous translation going on, and yeah. also I only watched it once, so I, only, <laughs> so I only got bits and pieces. I'm fairly confident that both Gummy and Blind say words like "championnat du monde" um, yeah. quite a bit, um, which you would expect because you know we're all about those world championships yeah. in, in these in these matches.
1: I mean, the, the bit I got in the after the previous one was there was a little exchange where it just went messy. Don't worry, Gato. So, uh, like, <laughs> it's okay, that's good. The, love. the
4: the one exchange I got was in the in the interview after the match, where they say, "Would you be interested in going pro in Japanese?" Oh, and she yeah. just basically goes, "No, <laughs> not really, no." <laughs> and she actually kind of go, "Well, you know, it's, it's a completely different level in terms of you know, it's not it's not my strong point or something." I but you can clearly see she's like, "I will never watch pro wrestling again in my life after this nonsense. <laughs> I will not go near a ring." I will not get married. That's how much I hate rings now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I've gotta say though, she i think she's pleasantly surprised by the reaction that she gets because I think when when there is that when there are actual cheers when they introduce them in for this second bout, she actually looks, she looks kind of pleasantly surprised by it. I don't think she was expecting to get any reaction whatsoever.
1: I, I feel like her and Doris blind in terms of turning pro. Uh, uh, be, be, uh, being French were born in the wrong era because, like, if they'd have been around in the era of that mad French trampoline wrestling that um, that used to happen, where they just like have trampolines at the at, like on the ring and just fucking launch them into the ring and do a Hurricane Rana when they landed in. <laughs> like, oh, could you man. imagine them doing that? I bet they'd have been great at it. That was the 50s,
3: right?
1: Uh, it's very hard to tell because it's all in black and white, but yeah, it's, it's like it it's real, it's basically like circus stuff. It's really it's really good, but like Why did it die out?
2: I would I mean <laughs> did it die out because all of the performers did. <laughs> right, the mad trampoline stunts. But
1: I would watch the hair Why out of that. Why is it not on T V right now? Why is it not occupying the same position kickboxing used to in
4: Japan? It's all <laughs> yeah. hermetically sealed in the Canal Plus vaults. They have it all in pristine quality and they just absolutely refuse to let anyone have it.
1: We're going to liberate all this uh, old wrestling footage from like ITV and the like when society collapses. Absolutely. We talk about <laughs> them quite a lot. Um, so, um, as I've said, this is a uh, rematch of the gold medal bout from that year's World Championship. So, this is um, certainly less scrappy than the... Um, previous fight there's a lot of sort of collar and elbow stuff at the start presumably because they have seen the previous fight and, and we're like <laughs> okay we're not going to get anything done if we're just constantly pushing each other back into the ropes and then the rest can have to blow his whistle so um uh yeah uh and the the basically the story of this match is Miyamoto. um is far better than Anna Gomi, despite the fact that Gomi is the second best in the world in her um, in her weight cap. She has
4: Gomi and Toast on this gate in this match. She is ridiculous. How how, she's just like overpowering her. Like some of the takedowns are mad. It's great.
1: Well, she gets her back immediately, pretty pretty much. Yeah. Oh point. my god. That's the you hate to concede an early goal. <laughs> There's um. So uh,
2: in in wrestling the the. the shooting in amateur wrestling is where you uh basically launch yourselves at your opponent's legs um it's how you how you get a takedown as you shoot um for it uh, and shooting you will almost always you will go for the nearest leg to you because that's that's how it works you want to grab the nearest thing and take someone down and if you get the way you would defend against somebody shooting a takedown is you would sprawl on them, which means you basically drop your entire weight on the back of their head uh, and and throw your legs out behind you, which means that if you're trying to go for their back leg instead of, instead of shooting for their, their front leg, you are essentially putting yourself in that sprawl position already. So nobody shoots for a rear leg takedown because it just, it would be, it would be too difficult except me. Yamamoto does twice <laughs> and, and succeeds both times and with seemingly no effort, just, the, the, like the, one of the things that, that uh, used to be said about Kid Yamamoto when he was the, uh, her brother, who was the mixed martial artist, was that he was never the most technical fighter, but fucking hell was he fast. Yeah. And like you, like he would just watching him. He has the, in fact, he has the fastest knockout uh, record uh, still, oh, well, four seconds.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This kind of reminds me of like my my old boss Muhammad at work, who used to uh, used to be a doorman. And he said, my secret was, I wasn't big, but I was crazy. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, this this match was, I think, probably less, probably less, had less about it than the... um... Previous one, it was essentially just an exhibition of how incredibly dominant a competitor uh, Miyu Yamamoto was. Probably my favorite moment was when the. the I definitely heard the commentator at one point when Yamamoto had Gomi's back, one of the very many occasions that this happened. I swear I heard the commentator say German suplex. i was like, I will be very <laughs> impressed if we get one of those. And the thing is, I have seen it happen in amateur wrestling. Um, amateur wrestling matches and they do not put them down gently it is very king's road um but um, yeah i'd fucking believe it at this point such was the extent of Miyamoto's dominance i'm like yes you probably could deadlift her and give her a german suplex on the back of her head why not at this point
3: i'm not really here for the moves i'm just i'm really getting a feeling just for how each of them is kind of handling the crowd and kind of their comfort with it and i think this is you can tell that Miu is in her element to a far greater extent than than Gomi and I'm not sure actually whether the occasion's getting the better of her because when you think about you know there were at least 32,000 people in this yeah. building at the time like there's no there's no way that you've ever wrestled in front of that many people before and it's got to be really nerve-wracking and whereas I think Yamamoto maybe having grown up around that kind of tradition of like Big sort of well attended combat sports and things like that. Maybe she's just a bit more comfortable with that as well. Yeah, and
1: she seems she seems much more um, much more together than Hamaguchi did as well. Like if you look at the post match interview, she is obviously she's won and Hamaguchi's lost, but she's just incredibly upbeat and just uh, even in even in a um, pre match promo, she's like seems very assured. Whereas like uh, she's the
3: reigning world champion yeah. as well. She probably goes into this feeling like oh I've done it once, I can do it again. Yeah,
1: and 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 we were able to see that she won the the fight four one because we actually get a. a long shot of the ring and you can see the scoreboard above it so it seems like there was some means of communicating the score to the uh, fans which I'm I'm sure they appreciated even if a lot of them were probably very confused as to what what (laughs) this was and why it was taking place Um, after the fight Doris Blind enters the ring and I think for like a brief, fleeting, joyous second, that the winners of these fights are going to play off in some sort of mad catchweight contest, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I would have really liked to have seen. Uh, but they're just there to receive winners' envelopes. So that was uh, Animal uh, Hanaguchi, um, okay. Ever
4: the schmoozer, raising Dardis Blunt's hand. It was, it was, a biz- oh, yeah. it was a bizarre, but.
1: I am and we'll have a Gucci doing a run in and challenging the winners
4: for the <laughs> for the EGW martial arts title. Um,
1: <laughs> like it's vacant. Well, I'll, I'll, put, look, I'll put it with my fucking weightlifting belt. I'm
3: fairly confident that one of the words I got from um, Anna Gummy's um, sort of post match po- sort of interview or whatever it was was um I definitely heard the word cinema, and I do think I, I think she was talking about the fact that pro wrestling is. Far more like theatrical and performance based, and I think she uh, and I mean, she's definitely got that uh, from watching Animal Hamaguchi do his pose <laughs> immediately before uh, she starts Ma- her match and things like uh, that as well. Ma-
1: Ma- Mark Kermode announced Big Egg Wrestling Universe review <laughs> on Wintertainment. Oh,
3: that
1: would
4: be great! Uh, one thing I want to shout out, because obviously, we made it a, a sort of theme of this uh, podcast is I really like to sort of totally um, discuss the the, the the different outfits that people wearing. I love, like Asics uh, leotards were amazing, yes. and Doris Blimps. I love um, color coordinated tracksuits that coordinate with your country. So she's wearing an ostensibly French tracksuit, which is red, white, and blue, and is absolutely like a national team tracksuit. And it's, That's the sort
1: of thing La Resistance would have worn on law in two thousand and
4: three. So good, it's so good, like, it's so good <laughs> but yeah, I love it. But yeah, I, I I'll always pop for. It's so weird that. It, like, over here, Asics and stuff, and Mizuno and stuff like that were sort of, they weren't really big brands or anything for that, they were kind of a bit out there, and not the most, everyone's always Adidas, Nike, or Umbro, whereas you you come to this and everyone is wearing like Mizuno gear, and I'm expecting Gola to turn up at some point, or?
1: Well, the guy who owns, Uni- owns Uniqlo is the, uh, the richest man in Japan, I think the Asics... A6- fellow is the second richest or something so like uh clearly this is big stuff i mean oh yeah i love the um i mean apart from the ring it did feel like um, olympic wrestling in that they had the uh, the red and blue leotard it very much took me back to um uh david you you you'll be an aficionado of this do you remember that um when uh tomoyuki oka um aka the great okan a British wrestling legend, and uh, Katsuya Kitamura, another man who has definitely not been involved with the Yakuza in any way. They, like, before they had their official New Japan debut, yes. like, guys Nagata brought them out in amateur wrestling singlets, oh. and they just chucked each other around for three minutes, and it's probably, like, the best match either of them have ever
4: had. Absolutely. It was like it was a match <laughs> of the cards, and I think there was, like, an IWGP title sh- match on that show, and it was just, like, it was so good. Yeah, I absolutely love it, and I hope because Nagata's doing, I mean, speaking of like, amateur wrestling and stuff like that, Nagata is involved in training amateur wrestlers for the 2021 Olympics. Um, He's training a Kazakh freestyler. (laughs) Uh, so funny, <laughs> you told
1: me this the other day. That is uh so fucking with Yuji Nagata, a man who definitely uh in the short term did not do very well out of the the mixing of professional wrestling and MMA. It's like you know you've not done MMA um before. Like it's basically like Homer in the uh in the Simpsons when he's told he's uh about to fight Dredwick Tatum, <laughs> like so there's guy called Fedora <laughs> like is he another hobo <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: I did get the feeling from that match that it was a bit more assertive and that it was a bit more it, it was a bit more aggressive. It felt like, I don't know, maybe it felt like there was a bit more of an intent rather than the other people sort of stumbling around and being like, "How the fuck do
4: we do this with these ropes?" Oh, yeah, they, I, they I think they absolutely wanted to win this. Like they 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 wanted yeah. the bragging rights. They absolutely did.
1: Oh yeah. And that—that's the that, I think that's the thing about going second. You can see what works in a ring uh, with amateur wrestling and what certainly doesn't. So um, that is it as far as the amateur wrestling goes. But we have a little bit of bonus content, which will not be going on our Patreon because we're nowhere near enough, pop, uh, popular enough to have one. So, um, and actually, David reminded me about the existence of this about five minutes before we were due to record. And I was like, ah, shit going to watch this, and the reason we're putting it um, in this episode is because we have absolutely. It's not amateur wrestling, and I, I'm pretty sure it's not shooting uh, I, either, but we have absolutely <laughs> no fucking idea where else in the run to put it. Do you know what this so is? Going-
4: <laughs> this is if you ever go to a non league game at half time, <laughs> yeah. they let the kids go onto the pitch and they play about with a ball and they score a goal at half time when everyone's getting their pie and stuff like that. That was literally this. It was 11 year eleven-year-olds in ballet outfits, doing so, uh, the most basic wrestling moves. It's so, so weird.
3: To say, everywhere that I, everywhere that I had read, sort of descriptions of this this show, they had all said it was a twenty-four match card. And then, but if you look on, for example, the Wikipedia listing of every match on the card, it actually only stretches to twenty-three. Yeah, cage match says like, twenty-three.
1: Well, the DVD listings. On places like right Wrestling Epicenter say 23, yeah. so, but i thought heard it was a 24 match cards. So yeah, what gives? Well, I'll tell you what gives. I'll
3: tell you what <laughs> gives is that we have some young, we have some young Indian women doing some grappling during the interval.
1: Yes, this is announced as all India women's <laughs> pro wrestling. Um, yeah, this is literally like uh, this is literally the interval. So you can see people like going out to get popcorn like while they're doing it. So David has somehow managed to find out uh, these women's names. Yes, uh, which is good. They're not listed on any match card. This is Meghna Singh and Nidhi Gurnani. Um,
4: Don't ask me
1: who's No, I have no idea why I'm very much flying by the seat of my pants covering this stuff. I mean, we, in terms of Indian pro wrestling, just a bit of background. Um, pro wrestling in India was at one point very, very popular. Um, there was a fellow called Dara Singh who was a famous wrestler and uh, worked in Japan in JWA and uh, later in New Japan. There's
4: a great he had- um, world service documentary about Dada Singh. Was, they got a guy oh, yeah, who yeah. was, um, who he, he basically is like growing up, his family had told him you need all your food and stuff. Like grew up strong like Dada Singh. And he told them of all these great exploits of him ripping up phone books and bending steel bars and stuff and fighting in <laughs> deserts and all that. And he yeah, went on a, a, a mission to kind of discover more about him and like, He's an, he's an incredible, uh, incredible um, specimen of a man and an amazing yeah, well, I, I've, subject.
1: I've got an uh, Indian friend who um, knew who Dara Singh was, but just from his uh, Bollywood appearances. Yeah. And apparently, he would, <laughs> just, he would just always play a saucy Punjabi grandpa, just making like load of lewd jokes. Like, granddad, you can't say that. But he, well, he was a pro wrestler and he had a couple of famous matches in Bombay against Luthez. At um, a big football stadium there, which drew about fifty five thousand, sixty thousand spectators a piece, and uh, there's a story about how uh, Luthers basically in India they just used to put matches on, and they like never had storylines or angles or anything like that. They were just like, "Here is some wrestling, enjoy it." And Luthers was like, "Well, your brother's a wrestler. What if I beat him?" And then you can say you're getting revenge for your brother, and Darling's like, "Tell me more of this, uh, of this story." <laughs> um, you're like, and then Luthers would do all these heel promos about how like India doesn't deserve like the like financial aid from the US <laughs> 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 and
4: stuff like that. No.
2: So
1: he didn't just didn't
2: introduce storytelling; he introduced racism in <laughs> <Yes>. storytelling.
4: <laughs> yes. it's basically uh, yes. it's the it's, the, it's, the, it's the, the inverse of when Tiger Ali Singh used to turn up on UK WWF pay per views. Talking yeah. about how you'll be his taxi driver at some point and stuff yeah. like that.
1: Yeah, Luther is definitely the first white man to be racist in India. So, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, but, but like we've got, um, there's more, more, more modern stuff to do in. Uh, Interesting, there was uh the uh, tna and colors tv production rinka king in 2012 which is absolutely one of my favorite things that I ever produced it was just absolutely fucking mad and was like matt morgan and scott steiner doing like weigh-ins for their title match um and uh basically it was half like um tna guys and half uh wrestlers with gimmicks like rickshaw drivers and uh and stuff like that and there was this and the um the The professional cricketer Harbajan Singh had a match with Jeff Jarrett, and there was a sumo wrestler at ringside for some reason. And Dutch Mantel was the booker, and then it got cancelled due to low ratings, which in Indian terms was te- a mere ten million. I said, only
4: almost <laughs> feels like final episode levels of ratings, but they're they're poor because it's India.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's just it, and it's the biggest country in the world, and and also of course we we can't forget um, uh, Ghetto Move and Choco Pro Legend Balianaki. Who is uh, currently flying the flag for Indian wrestler wrestling in Japan? I
4: can't believe you missed the greatest wrestler of all time, George. My my favorite. Oh for fuck's
1: sake! Um, is, it, is it the great Kalie? Dabang <laughs>
4: the great Kali himself, who I genuinely, without any hint of irony, absolutely fucking adore. I think he's amazing. Um,
3: he's he's the Do best. You know like he's, he's just the, the best. Great Khali. Absolutely cannot wrestle for shit. Certainly not by the time he gets to WWE, although I'm told that there are images of, like, the young, like, seven-foot-tall Great Kali actually well, being... He did a cross-body in New off. Japan, didn't he? He did, well, he did. Yeah, Did
1: you remember when we watched That's that amazing. top... Remember when we watched that top 50 vi- top fifty moves of the Great Kali video in the Wednesday night stream? Like, fuck off, does he have 50 moves? Like, yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> he just couldn't do any of them by the time he got to the feds. So <laughs> the
3: thing is, I actually... I don't begrudge him making a lot of money out of being a bad wrestler, because didn't he also, like give away at least 50% of all of his money was going into like Indian community charity I think
1: more time. like 75% yeah. he was like an incredibly generous uh fella and I, I've seen him live wrestle uh, another another Indian wrestling legend Jinder Mahal and um <laughs> Jinder when, the Mahal Khali, himself. <laughs> when the great when the great Kali comes out like look okay look he is a terrible wrestler yes he absolutely sucks but fucking hell he's big and at the end of the day, that is what <laughs> it contributes to the business.
4: What crate not the best, <laughs> granted, is not Brian Danielson soccer ROH 2006. Yes. Yeah. But he has a role to play in the same way as Big Daddy or Giant Haystacks. He just chops people in the brain and goes, Rawr! and just swings like a tree. That's his job. And he does it perfectly yeah. fine.
1: I mean, there's nothing of the great Carly in these uh, in these two women. There's, there's a couple <laughs> of promos beforehand. These were the, the other English language promos on the, uh, on the show, actually. One of them is asked um, how she feels about being there and just says, it's great. So nice, nice, and to the point.
3: Uh, and the other one just says something about how judo is their base, because uh, and that they're both, uh, you know, heavily working from judo, and that's about. Yeah, so that's I was expecting.
1: Of of them. Ah, so you, I see you know your judo well. <laughs> What's the <challenge? laughs> they were Indian actually meal? fighting for a
0: succulent
2: Chinese a succulent meal
1: and Indian meal? <laughs> so um, I'm very glad you know about that as well So I don't have to explain it to you At least, not the best, but fuck them. So um, so yeah, when they said judo is their base I was thinking, oh there's going to be a lot of judo in this So there's a bit of judo in this But mostly it was like entry level sort of pro wrestling stuff no. So like Boston crabs and the like, arm bars This is and literally uh,
4: like a red Wikipedia article on professional wrestling And the taxi to the dome levels of training <laughs>
1: It's so bizarre, like because I I I sent uh, I sent Zoe the um the link. I was like, yeah, I know we said we were due to record, but I forgot this existed. So can you please spend the next five minutes watching it? Uh, we're going to put it in here. I I'm I'm not sure it's uh, a shoot or not. And then like ten seconds in, I just messaged you say it's definitely not a shoot.
4: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> well, so I have I have my theory as to what this is, okay. which is that it's a it's a martial arts exhibition because I I actually um. I have a or I used to have a DVD, which was something very similar to to my experience watching these things, which was a I, I don't know what it was called, but it was a Japanese like here is a bunch of martial arts and also pro wrestling. Uh, and we're just going to show them one after another. And some of them, I expected it to be some kind of proto UFC. And it was very disappointing in that regard. But some of the fights were exhibitions, which was just literally they came up and they're like, here is what judo is. Did a couple of judo moves on each other. And that was what this was. To me, at least, it's what it was, and, and from what they were saying was like, this is we're not we're not actually competing. We're just showing you the judo moves we know. The downside is they weren't very good at judo. It was it was just terrible. I don't. So so my secondary theory was that they they have been tried out as a kind of nationalist thing of like, look, judo so good, even Indians are learning it, sort of
0: thing
1: this is why we've had you on the podcast you're like the only person in the history of the world who has managed to satisfactorily explain what this is
4: <laughs> like, I, I actually found out some background on these people would you like to hear wow some background? really yeah really I, I yes, please. So how was everything? yeah so i not i i managed to somehow i don't know how but i pulled up megana singh Eh, once defeated Fedor and rings in a technical knockout after a cut. For fuck's sake! Nidhi Nd- N- Gurnani won the 2006 Pride World Open weight Grand Prix champion and has tied Vanderlei Silver from most finishes in Pride history at 16 with 15 first-round finishes. <laughs> I may get messed up with Michael cro there, but...
1: <laughs> she also performed at uh, Operations for Croatian anti terrorism
4: <laughs> N- Oh yeah, they they, um, they taught Volcan. That's, uh, <laughs> now, the thing I absolutely adore about this, right, there's one thing that I love, it's weird things in the technicality, right? Now, imagine if you met somebody in the pub, right, for example, and they said to you, I, I wrestled at WrestleMania 17, now look, what fuck off? No, you didn't. No, I, no, I did. I wrestled at WrestleMania Seventeen. I was in. It was in, at the interval. Uh, me and my friend uh, Jamie, we wrestled in the ring together as like a, uh, as a thing. No, you, no, you didn't. I didn't. They did. They literally wrestled on Big Egg Wrestling Universe at the Tokyo Dome. The only notable, um, thing ever to happen in combat sports, apart from winning the 2006 Pride World Grand Prix. But like the only noble <laughs> thing they ever did. If you like, if somebody said to you, "You can have one wrestling match in your life, and it's a Big reg Wrestling Universe," I'd take that. That's amazing. Ab- ab- absolutely,
1: like this is absolutely fucking bizarre. I and mean, as far as I know, this was not like. Maybe this was like a uh, a, a, a soft. Like you think it was a soft launch for like them bringing in some Indian competitors in the same way that like New Japan did with the Soviets in nineteen eighty nine, but like I-, I cannot find any record of these two women doing anything in pro wrestling after this. So like I don't know what the fuck's going on. Default
4: hey, in a hundred thousand seater capacity football stadium. <laughs> <laughs> hey,
1: look, we promised we were going to do Big A Wrestling Universe in its entirety, and my God, we have stuck to that promise. And then they get presented with with what looks like a box of milk tray piece.
4: <laughs> um, <afterwards. laughs> I,
1: I have a, this was very odd.
4: It, it very, very odd, but not as odd as um, what happened afterwards, which you didn't even see. I just seen it afterwards.
1: Oh yes, tell us about this. Yeah,
4: Lucia Riker um, just turned up, and uh, if you don't know Larisa, Lucia Riker, seventeen and a record in professional boxing, thirty six uh, matches in kickboxing, thirty five ones in one draw. The only time she was ever knocked down was when she fought a man a male Mai Thai champion. Um the reigning Mai Thai Australasian champion at the time and she lasted till the second round. Um, she also start, also a million dollar baby. She was a Romulan in Star Trek. Um, she is by all accounts a bona fide nails like woman who could she was nicknamed Lady Tyson. That's how good she was. And she just turned up and she was like, I'm sorry, Kyoko, I was meant to fight you, but um, I've got an injury. And I'm like, should we fight Kyoko anyway? Jesus fucking Christ. Like, who is Kyoko (laughs) Inoue's agent? Who is booking these matches? If you look at, I mean, look at our other famous fight against the human wall that's like Lana Gundarenko, and you're like, who is picking these matches for her? I mean,
1: yeah, because we had this discussion. We were like, wait, Kyoko Inoue was in the VTOP tournament. On this, uh, on this, uh, on this show. So she has been, um, she has escaped. uh, I think is probably the 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 right word. Getting uh, mauled into putty by one of the greatest female boxers of all time. (laughs) And instead of that, she is like oh, yeah, you know, you're going to be in this tournament, which is reserved exclusively for the, the best wrestlers in the company. So it's like, yeah, fucking hell, Kyoko Inoue's role well on this show. She got a hell of an upgrade. Sounds like, sounds <laughs> the bullet, to She really did. Yeah. yeah. Fucking hell.
3: Well, maybe when people talk about it being a 24-match card then, maybe it was originally billed as including that match as well. And that to- would have been... Oh, God. Maybe that would have been the 24th match. And
1: 25, and, if you include include uh, Meghna Singh versus Nidhi well, do not Do didn't. not... Uh, well, yeah, may, maybe Ranky got injured on the night. And they were like,
2: right, does anybody here know how to wrestle? <laughs> and these... We've got these two Indian girls.
4: I, I, went, yeah. I have a friend who once went to a gig in Newcastle. And there was um, it was a, a famous Greencore band who the drummer never showed up for shows. He just couldn't be bothered. He, he thought it was beneath him. He was part of the band, but he just he just wouldn't ever show up for the shows because he worked on like, nights or something like that. And my friend went to this show, and they played, and he used to get people, like they would get ban- other people from other bands to put and they went up and he says, "Were you drummers?" and he went, no, I'm not doing it tonight. And he had no drummer, and he just went on stage and says, we don't have a drummer. Can anyone play drums? <laughs> and no one put their hand up. So they were like, "Right, fuck you, uh, <laughs> you, you. Can you play drums?" And this utterly melted man is like, uh, "No, nah, n- n- <laughs> no, but I'll get a go anyway." And he got up on stage and just like smashed a drum kit. And I feel that even that was more of a, a finesse booking, than these two Indian women in terms of like, and the the scary thing about this is that. They had other matches that didn't happen. This is a 10 and a half hour show, and they had stuff that they cut. Like, <laughs> it's like Blade Runner. Like, you know how they bring out like 18 different directors' cuts of Blade Runner? Or within another 45 minutes of footage of Blade Runner? Harrison Ford going for a shit or something. I don't know. What I mean. it's now like I'm there's million. We're all grateful that Opus. the version
3: that we have now doesn't have Harrison Ford doing a voiceover over it. <laughs> Big egg Wrestling <laughs>
1: universe, Kyoko in a way gets sent to the infirmary edition. <laughs>
4: <laughs> like I and it makes me think what else did they have? Was like uh, was Mildred Burke turning up just for a wee scrap? <laughs> or <I'm> like
1: <laughs> a V Pop tournament but for minis. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, would, I
4: would watch that so much yeah, <laughs> sure um, so, um,
3: so overall then What's our what, what's our impression of the world of amateur <laughs> wrestling At Big Egg Wrestling Universe uh, so, Zoe, as someone who probably yeah. knows a bit more about this than any of us Overall, what's your impression of how, of how this has gone for the company as a whole I
2: mean, obviously the ring was a mistake, but but if you've got a pro wrestling, I, I, I suppose you, you probably have to have a ring at some point for the pro wrestling matches and you can't, you can't just take it out of the, out of the arena. But yeah, like I'm impressed that they got legitimately some of the best female wrestlers in the world. Like, the, like and showcase their talents. It's like that not a lot of people, you know, like female wrestling doesn't get in the Olympics till 2004 because of, of just insane amounts of sexism. And like, the, the fact that they're having these guys on the show in it like this is the biggest stage they will wrestle on until some of them get to the Olympics. Like that's really cool.
3: I, I find it really exciting, but it's in terms of Japanese women's wrestling and the fact that I think women's women's sport and especially women's combat sports may, Japan was a bit ahead of the game in that respect anyway because especially like in the 80s like we've talked about in previous episodes you know you had massive audiences of young women turning up to pro wrestling shows that were young women fighting each other as well so maybe it was just an audience that was a bit more that was a bit more ready for it perhaps than maybe the rest of the world was which was maybe why it took it so long to get to the Olympics.
2: Yeah Japan is like I, I know that they are women's MMA pioneers, they're MMA pioneers in general, but certainly they had women fighting for the... Unfortunately, the promotion was called Smack Girls, which is a <laughs> oh bit... Yeah.
3: Okay. But, well, there are several people on this show who will go on to be in Smack Girls, who, who will go on to have yeah. fights with
4: them. I really, I really enjoyed this, like, in terms of... um, Like, the amateur wrestling, it's not like they're getting... To Indian last year, like, 12 years old at a ballet training and going and wrestling. Actually, know they are doing that as well, but um, like they got <laughs> proper, like, this is, like, this is, like, the inverse of that Liger-Kawada amateur wrestling match everyone talks about, about how they fought each other in, like, collegiate wrestling. But well, the opposite of this is that you had two of the greatest amateur wrestlers of all time, and they turned up at, like, an AJW show in the Dome and had this match, and it's just kind of, like, I imagine this will be, I wonder, it must be a, a, quite a curio for people who are, like, you know, the amateur wrestling career podcast, who are, like, <laughs> probably... Really a, I know. Uh, but, yeah, like, I, I really enjoy this. And I think it's great that you have that sort of lineage in the sense that this all comes from amateur wrestling, from people just grappling. And it's kind yeah, of nice absolutely. that you've got that sort of harken back to it. And also, kind of acknowledging the fact that japan are incredible at women's wrestling and you thought well you know you might as well and you've got when you've got probably one of the greatest amateur wrestlers of all time whose dad happens to be animal hamaguchi and who wants to be a joshi wrestler you know that's a gift and i think as much as like we might there will obviously be people who are who think that this shouldn't have been on here purely because you know they won't work great or you know what i go to bed or something i don't know but like i i really enjoyed the inclusion of this and i think it was a really good inclusion in the sense that it gave a different flavor people enjoyed it the people in there got a proper deathbed moment like in terms of you get you got to wrestle in the tokyo dome in front of like forty five thousand people and yeah yeah, it, yeah i think it was it was great i really enjoyed it and think... the Indian lassies, one of them did a move where they did a, they did a starsky and Hutch style roll over someone's back, like a car bonnet, and I think that's the greatest move I've seen on big egg yet.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I would say, you know, when you say about having one of the greatest wrestlers of all time whose dad whose dad is already is already in the business and who might be wanting to get into Jersey? In fairness. They didn't know when they booked Kyoko Hamaguchi for this, they didn't know that she was going to go on to be one of the greatest amateur wrestlers of all time, but they they knew that she was a, a promising up-and-comer who had all of this who had all of this potential and was keen on the business. So, yes, they brought in two kind of top-tier French athletes to to, to wrestle against them. But I think that this is a show, it's a showcase of look where this is where the future of Japanese combat sports is in terms of these two Japanese women, and they're kind of they're trying to celebrate kind of the full range of kind of women in sort of physical combat sports. Yeah, I think,
1: absolutely. Really. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you and say that like I was tremendously entertained by the by the matches. Um, I think I think that's. You know the amount of times the ref was having to blow his whistle and bring them back to the center and then restart, and then two seconds later the whistle was blowing again. I, you know, I have watched a bit of amateur wrestling at the Olympics. It is much better on a on a on a mat without the ropes. Um, but yeah, as far far, what was maybe lacking in uh, in spectacle in terms of the fights, I thought it was I thought it was a great inclusion and absolutely fascinating. Just as a, a, a relic of a particular time, and just to talk about um, amateur wrestling's place in uh, in you know combat sports at the time in Japan, and so yeah, I, I think it was a completely inoffensive showcase. Um, like it was, it again, you know, in the era of like thirty-five minute New Japan Pro Wrestling main events uh, all over the shop, you know, four minutes of you know. It, like top class amateur wrestling in less than ideal environment is absolutely fine by me and i've had a absolutely fantastic time talking about it on the podcast so uh with that in mind i guess that is just about it for episode seven um so uh let's uh, do plugs uh so so if you want to kick us off um you got any shit you want to shill or like where can people follow you on social media etc
2: yeah, you can follow me on uh, Twitter at Zoe Trans witch, uh, which you can remember because my name is Zoe. I'm transgender and I'm a witch. <laughs> uh, and uh, you can also catch me on Twitch. I occasionally live stream video games. Uh, twitchtv Zoe Again, uh, my name is Zoe. Sure and I'm you communist. should
4: be Zoe Trans Twitch. That would
2: a- <laughs> <laughs> have. Oh my god! I've wasted my life. <laughs> oh. I think you
3: changed your Twitter handle to Zoe Trans witch before the Twitch thing started though didn't you so to be honest, i did so yeah hindsight's a beautiful thing
1: you can <laughs> no that's that's uh, that's really good cool. david and i have this sort of long-term plan to like start twitch streaming fire pro and just have a big tournament with all the soviet uh, amateur wrestlers so like yeah <laughs> definitely definitely get on board for that um so, so we will be back for episode eight by the way because we have not yet left the uh the uh, Realm of uh, combat sports just yet. So do uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, so have you got any anything you would like to plug? In?
3: Yeah, so a couple of things. So um by this point seven episodes in, you are all probably sick of me doing this, but um I had an essay in a book called Women Love Wrestling. Um so that was actually published back in January. Um so when we originally started recording Big Egg Podcasting Universe, it was still kind of new and shiny and exciting. But here's the thing. It might not be new, shiny and exciting anymore, but um, the proceeds from US sales are going to rain and from UK sales are going to women's aid. So frankly, it's still fucking important. Please buy this book. Um, so I had an essay in there about um, the history of um, women's wrestling in Japan and the fact that that female audience base was always there and basically arguing that women have actually always been wrestling fans. It's just that you know male dominated businesses have liked to pretend that we don't exist, um, but women love wrestling is a fantastic anthology of essays from people who have frankly a bunch of people more interesting and more eloquent than i am um talking about life in the women's wrestling industry or P- or just being a fan and all of those different things um mick furley mick actual furley has said publicly that this book is very well written and i would like to think that part of that is direct praise of me and i am going to take that to my goddamn grave
1: well you, you're the first essay in the anthology i believe yeah, so, so that would be the first thing yeah i'm losing my shit over
3: there do, so, um, do
4: remember that mick has had several concussions and followed up <laughs> himself, so, you know. <laughs>
3: yes but you know what i'm going to believe that he meant it when he said what he said and
2: yeah, well, he he probably didn't make it very far through it because of the concussions. So you're you're the one that he's praising, right?
3: Exactly. So, this is so yeah. So that's my my biggest plug is always gonna is going to be until further notice. Um, get yourself on Amazon and search for "Women Love Wrestling" and anthology. Um, the link will actually be up in our show notes. So this is a thing that we've just started doing. This is for context. The first episode that we've recorded since we actually started putting this podcast out so this is a by this point hopefully you've all seen show notes for previous episodes but um it's a thing that I only recently decided to do so every episode is going to have um, a set of accompanying notes which include links and timestamps for where you can watch the different bits of the uh, of these matches and where they come up on uh, online and also links to all of these plugs so you will find my link to women love wrestling on there as well um and to zoe's twitch stream and to anything else that these jokers are going to add on um and that's going to be really useful just in terms of keeping track of what we're talking about at the time, so please, please do have a look at those. We'll be tweeting them also from at uh, two X footstomp as well, which is the Twitter account for I maintain the double footstomp is silly which is a website where we and several of our friends kind of record all kinds of random wrestling knowledge, thoughts, um, reviews of robot wars because robot wars is very pro wrestling. Um, oh, all I'm of Peter those things. One. Indeed, indeed. I was actually really disappointed that um, the judges in the amateur wrestling were not going on style control, damage, and aggression. Um, okay. So I mean, that's where we are just at, as a group. So I maintain the double foot stomp is silly.com for that. Um, what else have I got to plug? Um, at Sarah Parking one on Twitter. Um, but then you'll find me because Big Egg Podcasting Universe will be tweeting about me incessantly.
1: Yes, do, do use the hashtag. Uh, we've got uh, hashtag Big Egg Podcasting Universe if you'd like to uh, engage with us on uh, social media. If you've been enjoying the episodes and so forth. Um, uh, David, what have you got? Uh, what esoteric have you got to uh, tell the people about today? Well,
4: first of all, don't if you are listening. Call me. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, so you can find I wrote. I, went, I wrote. That's a grandiose term. Um, I. Created um, an album of experimental music um, entitled 13 Japanese Birds. It's a pun on Merzbo under the project name Abdullah Kobayashi. And every song is about a joshi wrestler. It's very out there, but, you know, I can't play music, so that's that's, that's your lot. Um, Fastbook.bandcamp.com, a whole lot of nonsense there. Uh, Lots of stuff I did, lots of stuff other people did. Um, I also run a Partic Fiscal podcast because... I really, you know, uh, six months of it going to see festivals has made me too happy in my life, so I need to discuss this with people. Um, I'm looking forward to misery coming back someday in the future, but we discussed the the club, what they've been doing during lockdown. Um, I usually do shit at quizzes. It's great fun, um, and as well as that, I actually have a genuine plea uh, to our listenership. Actually, I might as well get this out now. Um, I've been actually trying to um, get find something recently. I've worked long and hard for it, and it's becoming very elusive so i want to call out our listeners and ask if it. i'm looking for two books and they're entitled um miyu yamamoto queen and the strongest nudity if you have these <laughs> please get in touch as um i'm so willing to buy
3: to feature in a magazine you're looking in the wrong place instead you need it. you need a copy of flash magazine from 2017
4: <laughs> waterstone said they get it in but it's been like six weeks now so i'm not holding it at home
3: You
1: really stepped up as the horniest member of this podcast now. Dan Baker's not involved in this this limited series. I I,
4: I always generally prided myself on being the most, shall we say, um, prudent um, member of the the podcast in terms of not being horny on main. And then this came along. And now, (laughs) you know, I'm I'm just, you know, an absolute disgrace. But um, yeah, um, so listen to my podcast. Listen to my music um, and keep listening to this, please.
1: Absolutely, thank you very much David. Um, My plugs are, uh, I'm the author of a novel called The Rise and Fall of Rikidozan, which is set in the world of Japanese professional wrestling Uh, features my protagonist getting drawn into the world of uh, professional wrestling in late 50s and early 60s Japan, when it was generally like the biggest thing on uh, TV and the biggest thing in sports. Um, If you liked our chat about the Yakuza earlier, then there may or may not be a little bit of that in the novel, spoiler alert, and it's basically about um, (laughs) wrestling. Yakuza
4: uh... and Rekidozan together, (laughs) and (laughs) they're
1: Economy <laughs> <laughs> it's basically about professional wrestling's uh role in Japanese society after the war, uh and about how it was a way of working through the trauma of losing to the Americans by seeing uh their hero Ricky Dozan beating the evil Americans in the ring. And uh yeah, so it's uh it's uh a novel with a lot to it uh, people seem to have enjoyed it you don't need to you don't even need to know shit all about wrestling in general let alone uh, japanese wrestling of that particular time period to enjoy it i've had good reviews from people who absolutely knew nothing about wrestling going in some of whom are not even related to me um otherwise um yeah do do follow us at purer podcast on uh, on twitter the most uh, generic uh, twitter handle that there is in our field um and I never, I never remember, I never remember to uh, uh, talk about this. But uh, I have a chapter in a book called "A Hundred Greatest Literary Detectives," um, which uh, came out uh, a couple of years ago. I've got like a thousand words on Jasper Ford. It's, it's always all very weird. But uh, hearing Sarah talk about her article kind of jogged my memory on that. fun absolutely nothing to do with wrestling, but uh, if you're interested in detective fiction, then like check that out. I guess. Um, and, um, that's about all that I have got. So, um, yeah, this has been episode seven of Big Egg Podcasting Universe. Join us next time for episode eight, where we'll be talking about kickboxing and shootboxing. So until then, adios. David Forrest, and along with my wife
5: Doris Blind and our two children, we've lived in this magnificent chateau in France for the last four years. I
4: love you, I love you, I
1: love you.
5: It's not just our home, right? It's a but a business. And it turns out we're not the only Brits who've quit the UK for the chateau life. <sighs> I've never seen you like this. I can't talk. Now, Doris Blinn and I are back helping more chateau owners on their journey. The whole of this has to be completely tanked and sealed. We'll work with some familiar faces.
0: <laughs> Good to see you. Welcome.
5: And meet some who are new to the chateau life.
0: Hello. Good work.
5: <laughs> oh, you broke it. Yeah. In the hole. Yeah. That's a bit of an issue. As they battle to renovate their homes and make them work as businesses
2: Ooh, guess so here.
5: there'll be extraordinary discoveries oh, wow, 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 wow. and inevitable obstacles <laughs> but however hard the going gets for these plucky Brits their homes really are their castles <laughs>